Welcome to Radio ISO, the podcast for anyone out there in self-isolation who's really missing someone right now. It's a frightening time and we don't yet know how the next weeks will unfold. So during that period, this will be a place to tell your stories about the people you love and miss. I'm your host, Emily Sargent. Today I spoke to Krista in LA, who's missing her young niece and nephew. I'm trying to think of what's the what's the bottom line I could share. Um, it's basically navigating uh, relationships in a pandemic, like re- romantic relationships in a pandemic. Mm. And uh, I just called one off yesterday. Your lives are like appended, mm. you know, like people are dying. The kind of the emotional weight of this pandemic, which is very real, right? We even to meet, like we could die. I mean, that's like the extreme of it, but like this is a, a real weight. Mm. So it's like this this kind of lingering question for him not being able to navigate. How do you actually like try to build a relationship with somebody in a pandemic? Said that I don't know that I could like talk to someone like this could go till June or July. And I yeah. know for me, can I talk to somebody for like three months? And what is that? Like, we're not going together and we're Zooming. I just needed to know for myself. I have a friend doing the same thing here where she's, and I guess she's sort of the stage before you've got to, but she is also like, how long can we maintain this virtual connection? It's so, and also the the idea of, of beginning a romantic thing in the middle of, as you say, the context of this situation, which is really frightening and really dramatic and everybody's, feelings are very heightened it's it's sort of um it it makes the relationship seem like it needs to be very serious or not happening at all because everything exactly yeah exactly if you came out the other side of this and you were still together you would sort of feel this pressure to stay together because you've experienced you've had this joint experience which is a once in a lifetime thing and it would be it would have been forged in the middle of that it's so it's it's, yeah and I don't want to also build a relationship even whatever that even means because someone's just lonely meaning like I mean you'll do because I'm lonely like, yeah. that's not a great place to start a relationship. Not that that's what, what I was in, but that is a thing that that, that is there kind of, I think, yeah, latently. People are just lonely, you know? Um, and then I think you had said it too earlier. There's this pressure, like, about, like, okay, now we have to be serious. Versus before corona, you know, you'd meet somebody on an app, you'd get a beer, you'd hang out. It'd be a little bit more breezy, you know, a little bit mm-hmm. lighter, a little bit. There's just an added pressure of, like, you know people are dying. We're on a, like a legal shutdown. So literally even meeting up to, to, to meet up is technically against the law. I mean, this is some crazy, crazy stuff. That's just the reality of, of just where we are right now in, in the times of Corona. How is the feeling? So, so you're in LA, how's the feeling in that, in LA at the moment? Well, I feel like, um, it's hard to gauge. Like I'm single. I live alone. So when we talk about social isolation, like I'm super isolated. I really don't in, in a way. So, and because I had 
because of this this kind of emerging potential relationship, I was super isolated. Like I wasn't out at shopping. I really was like, go to the shop one day a week, mask, gloves, everything, and then I would come home. 45 minutes, that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I think from what I'm seeing in my, you know, from my window or when I've gone out, um, I know for LA, um, the numbers haven't grown in terms of the infection rates. They haven't grown um, at the rate, say, of New York City. Um, and I think there's a lot of reasons why for Los Angeles, why our numbers haven't been as high. For example, we have horrible public transportation, mm-hmm. which is a huge exposure, um, like opportunity for exposure. Yeah. So we're in our cars all the time. So we're essentially hermetically sealed. <laughs> that protected us, I'm sure, for the virus at some point. Yeah. Um, and then I also feel like our state was super proactive and our county and our city. Now the prospects of it, you know, it's only been, I think I'm at 30, what, 33 days of lockdown, just for the way that my work worked out. 33 days where I've been like at home with no, like no being out, no restaurants, no gatherings. I can feel now it still feels like, oh, it still feels like kind of my old life, but I feel like in a month, it'll really start to kick in. And especially, you know, they said May 19th, but just given in our country, depending on if you're in a democratic state or a Republican state determines whether or not your state is controlling coronavirus and virus don't observe artificial borders like state borders. Mm -hmm. So I just have a feeling because of the inconsistent management of the virus, it's just going to be a very long time. I may have been a low key hermit, before Corona. (laughs) Like I didn't really think about it, but honestly, I didn't think about it um, until coronavirus hit and I like feel like it was okay. But now that I'm, I think technology fatigued, that's what I mean. I can feel this upcoming, you know, month two that I'm in, I can already get a sense, um, that it's going to be really difficult. Yeah, so these are, um, it's very interesting. So I have a niece that is five years younger than me, and she has kids. So when I talk about my little nieces and nephews, technically they're my great niece and great nephew. So so the littlest one is, he just turned five in January, and then his sister is eight. So when did you last see them? Um, you know, it's one of those things that's very lucky. I, um, I go to Atlanta. That's one of, that's home. I I went to Atlanta for Christmas and normally I'll go at Christmas and then I won't go again until the summer. Mm -hmm. And I just, something in me was like, you should go, you should just go in February. So I went in February, which is, I had just been six weeks prior. So it's very atypical for me. Um, and I went in February because I wanted to see them. But also my other niece had a baby. Uh, so it was kind of a, a chance to meet this like 18-day-old baby and then to see who I called the past kids. Yeah. What does the past kids mean? Is that an American thing? That's that their getting? last name. No, that's their last name. I have oh. 10 nieces and nephews in total. And so when I go to Atlanta to visit everybody... I have to hit up, you know, four different households to visit everybody. And in retrospect, I'm so happy that I did that because this trip was essentially three weeks before coronavirus got got, like rampant. Um, And now I don't even know when I'm going to be able to get back to Atlanta Mm. to see them. 
what kind of role do you play for them, do you think? Yeah, so I, um, it's very, it's a very um, interesting one. In our family, um, it's, it's very traditional in a Southern American family and also an African American family that it's very much a matriarch driven culture. Mm-hmm. So the, the older women of the family really provide, you know, emotional support, spiritual support, the pep talks, the discipline, really the, the moral compass. That's kind of what the women in our family play. Yeah. And in our family, um, my mom died in 2006. So the, none of my nieces and nephews have a grandmother and most of them never met her. Actually, almost all of them never met her. So we don't have we don't have any great grandmothers. We don't have any aunts. So there really is no there's no matriarch really in our family. So I didn't, you know, ask for the role, but I think for for just I think the way that I am, I kind of have become that for the kids in our family. Um and so when I go there, you know, it is about playtime, so we cook together. Um, we play, we sing songs. What kind of things do they like to make with you? Honestly, the thing about the, these kids, um, they don't really care. They just love to eat. So if you, (laughs) if you just make it, they really don't care. So it's not like, um, like for other friends, kids of mine, they're like, Oh my gosh, Auntie Chris is here. Can we do cupcakes? Like I'm the baking auntie or the plate auntie Mm -hmm. um but for the past kids it doesn't matter I could be saying all right we're gonna make chili for dinner and the eight-year-old will be the first one in the kitchen can I help Mm. and I'll be like okay and what's cute about Daylin that's her name it's not even just wanting to like help cook she just wants to help period and just be with me so even if that's Mm. can I wash the dishes for you and and I'll think what eight-year-old is volunteering to wash the dishes it's just so funny to me that she's such a thoughtful um, kid and just wants to kind of be in the kitchen from beginning to end. And I'll say that we've been cooking together for so long that um, this is just a cute side story that I was there um, Christmas of 2018 and I was playing with my nephew, the, the five-year-old little boy. And she said to me, you know, Auntie Krista, you know how you always, you know, um, let me cook with you? And I said, yeah. And she's like, well, I'm going to cook for you. And I said, okay. I thought she meant play cooking because at this point she was only seven. I thought yeah. she was like kidding. And she said, I said, okay, what are you going to cook? And she said, oh, well, I'm going to make some silver dollar pancakes, which are those really tiny, small pancakes. Yeah. Um, that are like, you know, the size of, I don't know, the, the, the opening of a glass. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, okay, sure, I'll take two. And then she said to her little brother, Davy, would you like pancakes too? And he said, yes, I'm hungry. Which, by the way, is his catchphrase because he's always hungry. <laughs> All the time, he's always hungry. And um, and then I was like, she's been gone like 20 minutes. I should, as the only adult who was awake, I should probably go investigate. Make sure know, she's not on happening. fire in the kitchen. Yeah, I go in the kitchen. There are 10 small pancakes on a plate the bowl that she used to mix the pancakes are is washed and on the drying rack the pan that she used is is washed and it's on the drying rack and she said oh I was just about to get you guys for breakfast but I don't know what has happened I don't know if she's like microwaved some frozen pancakes so I literally I asked her wait a minute 
did you just make pancakes from scratch? And she said, well, I told you I was going to make you all pancakes since you always cook for us. This is how she is. And so when I say that when we cook together, it's not about the thing we make. It's about the doing it together. Food was really central to my family. You know, I remember being a little kid, five myself, um, five years old, and being with my aunt die. And she was a she was a, a serious baker. I mean, serious. And that's where I learned a lot about, you know, different flavors and what are what are what are some traditional Southern desserts that I watched her make. Mm. Um, and then you know, I had each of my family had like their specialty. My mom actually could not cook really or bake, um, but. My other aunt was really great with side dishes, and my uncle was a great barbecuer. Like, everybody had their food thing. And so my earliest memories of connection and being together were in the kitchen around food. And, in fact, I was talking to one of my adult nieces about it, who has kids herself, and she basically was like, well, why the kids like to cook with you is you don't yell at them. You're not like, get out of this kitchen. You're making a mess. You're in my way. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you invite them into the space, and that's why they like it too. Yeah. Um, and so I do think it's a place of connection. Food brings people together um, across culture. Um, and I do think that there's something communal about a kitchen. And so it makes sense that that's where we have our best conversations, that that's where we feel um, connected to each other. Does it feel important for you to pass on certain recipes or certain traditions or dishes, or is it just the act of being together? For me, every New Year's, I, I do a traditional meal. That is, uh, it is a Southern tradition now. People say it's a Southern tradition, but it really comes from um, traditions that were passed forward from um, enslaved Africans, which is my family's um, heritage. So it is a meal of black eyed peas, which signifies um, like, um, wealth and health, and then cornbread, which also, because it's gold, signifies wealth, and then greens. Any kind of green leaf vegetable also signifies like wealth. So it's just about health and wealth and bringing that into the new year. Mm-hmm. And because I wasn't alone, I was with, with the kids, I was like, oh, I have to go to the store and I have to get these foods to make... Um, and you know, kids ask questions. So the littlest one who's always hungry and always wants to know what's, what's, what's for lunch, what's for dinner. He said, you know, what are you making? What are we going to eat? And I, at first I said, oh, I'm just going to make some black eyed peas and some cornbread. And then I thought, oh, he doesn't know any of the reasons why my mom and my aunts all did this every new year's. It, It comes from a long history of tradition that's not just southern U.S. beginning in 1900. This actually comes from, you know, 1700s, 1800s from slaves that came from Africa to the U.S. and brought their food cultures and then got kind of co-opted into southern American cuisine. Yeah. And then I'm like, how do you explain transatlantic slavery to like a five-year-old? Okay, wait a minute. Mm. But there's, there's ways in which to talk about food culture that is um, – kind of nested in tradition to start. And so I, I felt it in that moment, like, okay, there's, there's stories here that they don't know. And then I have an opportunity to share that they then are cooking the dish themselves for their families. But you know, you do that once you start to build the tradition and we are just starting to do that. I just think that it's it's such an amazing gift to give kids because 
I, I, my memories around food when I was younger are so strong. How would yeah. you describe their personalities? Are they similar to one another or are they quite different? Oh my gosh, they're so different. They're so different. The um, the five-year-old, he's the, the baby. The five-year-old is very, um, he's high energy. And, um, you know, he was such a sweet baby and a sweet toddler. And he's still such a sweet boy. I mean, he's very loving and cuddly and sweet and caring. And then Daylin, who's eight, she's almost like a little adult. I mean, I think the best... I think way to understand her personality is what I said. What kid says, okay, I'll wash the dishes or, you know, um, is cooking for others. And then from beginning to end, when she's done, you don't even know that she was in the kitchen. Say you're cooking or playing games or whatever it is you guys are doing together. How does that make you feel being around them? Kids need in their lives, like a non-judgmental, safe, loving adult in whatever form that comes. And I just show up as me. When I go to Georgia, it's just me. I'm there as Krista, who's there to see her family. But I think what has um, been really fulfilling is to hear from the kids that I am that for them. And because I get to pop in and out, like I'm like a Mary Poppins. I pop in, you know, and then we, you know, we have rules, we can have fun, we have a little bit of magic, and then I then I leave. What would be your how would be your dream day to spend with them? My family had traditions when I was young, and one of those traditions was a family reunion. So when starting in 1988, um, which was very common, I think, in other black families across the United States, we started doing family reunions. Mm-hmm. And it was a way, first of all, and, and not to be too long-winded, but I think it's important history that in America for African-Americans that don't have Caribbean roots, um, it's very hard for us to trace our families back because of enslavement. So we chose to do, I'm, I'm saying we as a collective, as African-Americans, to mm-hmm. intentionally build connections to our families. And so family reunions were a huge, huge cultural thing throughout the 80s and the 90s. Um, I mean, to the point where it was very traditional for Black American families to like even make like T-shirts that would be like, you know, the Johnson Family Reunion, 1993. It was a huge thing. Mm-hmm. And that has dwindled. You don't really hear it and see it as much, but I think it was part of this cultural revolution that was happening in the 80s and the 90s. And so for us, that was a huge tradition in our family. Every summer we got together, we cooked together we, we told stories, we sang songs, we met, got to meet our cousins. We just um, really built those cultural ties to know like we are a family, even though we spread four different states. Yeah. And because, you know, there were, there, there were the original six siblings. My mom was one of the six Redmond kids that were the conveners of our family reunion. All but five of those six are passed away, including my mom. And my uncle nearly died like three months ago. So for us, like they're really, they're just the, our, our ancestors, even one generation back are gone. There's just no traditions that are alive in our family and nobody has like continued the torch. And for me, I'm so deeply tied to wanting to have traditions to share, at least for my little branch of the family tree. And so one thing that I started to do 
was on my for my dad. He's a huge farmer and a huge gardener. Mm-hmm. Um, he grew up farming. It's part of his passion. And he lives in the Atlanta area, but about an hour from my nieces and my sisters. And he, every summer, has like bumper crops of incredible food. You name it, it's in his garden. Wow. And I remember th- uh, two or three, three summers ago, I was talking to the past kids about me growing up in you know North Carolina with family at these reunions and going to the fields and picking fruits and vegetables. And that was just a part of my childhood being very connected to the food that yeah. we eat. That's just very part of our tradition. And they had no sense of it. They didn't know. They, they had no even connection to our North Carolina farming history. So I was telling my dad that and I said to him, can I, can I bring my nieces and nephews out to your house so they can come and like see food coming out of the ground? And so we started this, this where we went to my dad's house. It was like 96 degrees Fahrenheit, humid, hot, mosquitoes the size of a thumb. I mean, these things were huge. And I thought the past kids were going to get out there and be like, okay, we're done. Like, it's too hot for this nonsense of picking blueberries and tomatoes. And in fact, we got out there and my dad, who just loves, he's so proud of his eight humongous bushes that were bigger than the kids, by the way. <laughs> and the kids, he'll be 73 this year. So um, he was just elated to show off his light garden. And, mm-hmm. um, but the kids, it was this really transformative moment where they saw, they know what a blueberry is, obviously, but it doesn't come in a clamshell in the grocery store. It was on this bush. And in order to like eat it, you have to like pick it off and you have to pick a lot. Mm. And I remember the eight-year-old said, you know, well, Auntie Krista, do we just, do we just pull it off? And I said, yeah, baby, you just, you just pull it off the tree and you keep pulling it until your basket's full. And she was like, okay. And the little one, Davy, the five-year-old, he said, okay, I'm going to start picking. I'm going to get all of them. I'm going to get every one of them. (laughs) And it was like, okay, you do it. And that started this tradition. And so I know that's like a long way to answer your question, but the answer to the question of what am I most looking forward to is if this thing ended in June or July, the thing that I would most want to do is pick back up our tradition of going to my dad's house in June or July. And Mm. so I, I didn't get to take them this last summer And I've been saying all year, don't worry, you know, summer 2020, I'm going to pick you guys up. We're going to get our baskets. We're going to go pick blueberries. And now I'm like, oh, I didn't do it last year because I was too busy. And now summer 2020 is coming and we most likely will not be picking blueberries again. So it's kind of a, that's like the one thing that I know they still talk about it. It's been almost two years since they last went picking and they still tell people they still talk about it because the highlight was not only the picking, the sweatiness, the stinkiness of it, the bugs, the heat, the humidity. They, they didn't get fatigued. They didn't miss their iPhones or iPads once. When we were done, we went back home and I taught them how to make a blueberry cobbler. But that's the memory. You know what I mean? Like, that's yeah. what they remember. It was literally summer of 2018. And they still talk about picking blueberries and the cobbler. I mean, it does the sound cobbler. idyllic. It really... It, yeah. I, hope, I really hope you get to go this year. I know. I know. 
is there anything you've never said to them either as a pair or individually that you would like to or that this experience has made you think this is a thing I've never told them that I want to it's a good question and I I thought about it or I'm thinking about it and I think my answer is no um, but, but it's a very intentional reason why that, why that is to say mm. that, um, wow, that question got me emotional. This answer did, but it's, but it is that I think for me, my mom was a super, um, loving and, and, an outwardly emotional parent to me. And when she died, I saw the ripple effects that that had on the grandkids she left behind. And those would be my nieces and nephews. And I saw, because they didn't have her in their life, I saw how things were even more challenging for them as a result. And what I mean by that is, you know, do they have someone in their life that can be a positive person? That's always the light bringer. Do they have somebody who's always telling them why they're special um, and that they're loved? And my assessment for a lot of it was no. And so for me, that's that's how I also show up. Mm-hmm. So I can't actually think of anything that I haven't said to them because it's so important to me, um, especially what I've seen them go through, that they always know that there's one person. I mean, they have many but that there's always the one person in me that sees um, their gifts, that sees why, um, you know, they're special and tells them on a regular basis um, that they're special, that they're loved, um, that I love them, what I love about them, and and that I can't wait to see them and and what I hope we can do next time. I'm sure they're going to grow up feeling very loved and stable having you around. I hope so. Or at least they'll have full bellies. That's, I guess that's, I'll, either, I'll, either feed, I'll either feed their spirit or I'll feed their bellies. <laughs> if you'd like to come on and tell us about someone you're missing, we'd love to hear from you. Get in touch at radioisopodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at radioisopod.com.